to invite uh, Helen Marksworth um, to sit at the front here. Just to change the, the pace a little, I'm really pleased that we managed to persuade Helen Marksworth to uh, come this afternoon. Many of you will uh, know Helen Marksworth's work and also her, her work both as a curator but also uh, as a writer. And I particularly wanted Helen to, to come to this event because we've talked about Annie Adler's work over the years. Um, in fact, when, began, when I became involved in the show that's now at the Tate, um, Helen was working on her great Black Mountain college show that toured around the States called Leap Before You Look and had already been grappling and thinking about a lot of these problems already. And you were very, certainly very helpful in all of those conversations. I mean, you've obviously done many other shows, most recently Tell My Heart, I mean, endless, really groundbreaking shows. But for this afternoon, um, perhaps the Black Mountain show was such an innovative um, kind of way of thinking how to do an exhibition. Wondered if you could begin by talking to Alan talking about what it was that gave you the idea to, to do that exhibition in 2016, I think it uh, yeah, sure. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for being here, and thanks for bringing me. Um, I arrived this morning from the state, so I'm a it's impressive. Hey, you've got let's put let's say that let's just say that the weft of my brain is particularly loose at the moment. Um, but and I also um, just to share. Um, Anecdotally, I, I have I come not by way of my my current home city, which is Los Angeles, but by way of St. Louis, where I was just at the Ruth Asawa exhibition at the Pulitzer. And uh, for those of you who know, Asawa was um, the kind of cherished student of Joseph and Annie Albers, and um, I didn't really realize how incredibly lucky. I was until I got into your the show uh, this morning, and I realized like, wow, I'm seeing these two bodies of work within a 48 hour period. It's just, as the kids say, it was epic. Um, and uh, yeah, so it we was, have one Ruta Sauer <laughs> yes, next you do. to with verticals, you know, the BMC Black the, Mountain right. College stamp. But for me, it's it's a good place to begin because actually the Black Mountain Project began with Asawa. Um, I had been working on a an exhibition about some of the relationships I was intuiting between dance and drawing in the 60s. Uh, and I had a terrific intern at the time, who um, a woman named Megan Steinman, who asked me if I knew the work of Ruth Asawa, and I did not. And um, Asawa came up with her central kind of bulbous form um, in a drawing, uh, or, or from drawings rather, that she was making 
of watching her fellow students take dance classes in Merce Cunningham's class, right? So she marries this kind of bulbous drawing form to a basketry technique she learns from indigenous women in Toluca, Mexico, when she is in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, in Mexico with Joseph and Annie Albers on one of the Albers's many trips to Mexico. So she marries these two things to develop that suspended sculptural form for which she is best known. And when I realized that Asawa went to Black Mountain, uh, it shook me because I felt that I was, you know, in a very arrogant way, I felt I knew a lot about Black Mountain. Um, but when I went back and reread the Martin Duberman book, um, on Black Mountain, which is a sort of legendary text in many disciplines, history, art history, uh, utopian studies. Uh, Asawa is made almost no mention of. In fact, Asawa doesn't really come up at all in the text, and Annie Albers doesn't make a great big appearance either. And I thought, well, if Ruth Asawa went to Black Mountain, like, who else went there? What else don't I know? And what might it look like to come at Black Mountain through the lens of Ruth Asawa, as opposed to coming at Black Mountain through the lens of the kind of classic Rauschenberg, John Cage, Merce Cunningham triumvirate, which is a very powerful way to come at Black Mountain, and that it's true, but it's such a dominant hegemonic story that it has just served to kind of obliterate all of these other stories. Um, and so I love this idea that you have about thinking about weaving, it, uh, thinking with weaving, using weaving as a way to think. Um, because one of the things that I was thinking about in the show and also listening to the papers today is what happens actually if you come at Black Mountain, which is for me, a, a shorthand of you come at the sort of neo the birthplace of the avant-garde in the United States for the second half of the century. What if we came at that through Annie? What if Annie were the sort of primary portal through which we surveyed the terrain of Black Mountain, and then, you know, ergo, the terrain of post-war art in the states as a as a whole. And that gets really interesting, like, very quickly, it seems to me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I just wrote a list. And I don't mean any of this as causal, but rather um, what, to, uh, to quote my own favorite uh, uh, line from Ernest Block, um, Block talks about the conditions of possibility, right? Like, right? And so thinking about history not in a kind of cause and effect manner, but thinking about history as a field in which certain things are happening that create the possibilities for certain other things to happen, right? And how can you map that field with it? Um, to me, it's a really interesting way of thinking about history because it promotes complexity, right? You get to make a very rich field of coordinates through which you can then think through um, things that emerge. So if you use Albers as a lens, um, it seems to me one of the very first things that comes up is that we have the haptic uh, 
rather than pure opticality. And that is just, that's huge, you know, because I think the haptic is actually like what kind of gets us to through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, not pure opticality, right? The pure, op the green, that classic Greenbergian moment of pure opticality is actually kind of limited. I feel like we've all been fighting with it for decades, but actually like it's relatively bounded and the haptic feels much richer to me. Um, and some versions of that are thinking about Robert Rauschenberg's bed through the lens of Annie Albers, right? Thinking about Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome, the first of which is uh, erected at Black Mountain College. Thinking about that through Annie Albers. Thinking about Cage preparing a piano through the lens of this idea of, I love this phrase, I did not know this phrase, that one dresses a loom. So, so erotic, I can't, it's so great. Because you know, anything you dress, you undress too, it's fantastic. Um, but thinking about Cage's intervention into the piano, because for us, I think as you know, one of the big moves in the, in the installation of the Black Mountain College show was to actually put a loom in the room with a grand piano and to sort of have these two things, these two extraordinary objects um, reverb with one another as signifiers for, for culture, for civilization. Um, Asawa's sculptures, clearly, um, I think we can think through the lens of Annie. So even just there, like these big sort of landmark moments in the history of post-war art um, that also deal with music, architecture, and a kind of radical combining of painting and sculpture, right? All three of those things can be, I think, really productively opened by thinking them through um, Albers's practice. Um, one thing that hasn't come up, maybe it will in some of the other papers, Annie Albers was a beautiful writer. She wrote a lot. She wrote a lot at Black Mountain. She wrote almost all of the kind of promotional literature that the college put out. Um, and so in some ways, she's a model of the artist writer. We always start with Smithson, but we could start with Alpers, right? And we could start with On Weaving. We could start with these earlier texts that she is writing. Um, she has a very interesting relationship to writing, doesn't she? Both in her actual practice, mm -hmm. insofar as writing, and you know, the idea of the, the weave before the word, right. and, and the word that constantly kind of preoccupies her in her, I mean, so many of her titles, right? you know, Rye mentioned some of them, but open letter and mm -hmm. so on, but yes, that clarity of her voice in her written work the fact that she writes the entry for the Encyclopedia Britannica, yes. you know, weaving, comma, hand. Right. There's something very, that kind of lucidity in this voice, mm -hmm. isn't it? That she's constantly has this relationship to writing, to language. Right. It's always there. And she was, I mean, it's, I can't think about her outside of the context of Black Mountain, 
she's translating all of Joseph's classes for years. Joseph comes, Joseph, Albert, Joseph Albers arrives with no English, but Annie arrives with English. And so Annie is doing this translating work as well as doing the writing. Uh, and I think that that's really interesting, this, that kind of, um, the open pragmatism of her writing, the, the clarity of it, uh, has always struck me as something that might have been born of this need to be tr to be translating for students, mm. you know, in in sort of real time. Do you think, in response to because you've now seen the the show at Tate, the the way in which this is obviously an attempt at a, an incomplete retrospective, in that it is incomplete. Mm. Obviously, not everything is there. It's not definitive, but it's also deliberately incomplete in that it's meant to open out different aspects of the story and obviously both to not entirely free her from the Bauhaus and Black Mountain but also to see her work as not entirely circumscribed by right. those amazing <coughs> institutions that she taught in. Well, yes. I mean, first off, I think you're selling it a little short. I think it feels really comprehensive and kind of overwhelming at the level of, like, it's, you know... I, I mean, I thought I knew a lot, and I, there were many, many revelations for well, me. Well, I'm really glad that nobody's noticing the things that one becomes so aware of. Yeah, that you, we that's only because you know what loans you didn't get. <laughs> we, your, your audience doesn't know the loans you didn't get. Um, I was amazed by the New Haven period. So the Albers leave Black Mountain College because Joseph is hired. Annie's actually never hired uh, at Black Mountain College, and she's, and she's actually barely paid. Um, the wives were not hired. The wives were not paid. The wives are, to use a phrase of Eva Diaz's, the wives are stowaways. At Black Mountain. At Black Mountain. John Cage was a wife as well. John Cage was a stowaway. He wasn't paid either. He was. He sort of shows up as Merce's accompanist. Um, so there's that little part of the story. But when the Albers arrive at Yale, um, even though Annie had been a completely fulsome member of the Black Mountain College community, teaching, writing, um, they arrive at Yale, and the faculty club is still closed to women. And Annie is not allowed to eat lunch in the faculty club. And the way the story was told to me by Sheila Hicks, so I have no idea the, there's, some, there's something kind of apocryphal and fantastical in the story, but I share it with you nonetheless. So apparently Annie is in the house in Connecticut, in New Haven, and she's just bullshit. And you, do you know what I mean? Like she's come from this huge open community and now she can't even like get lunch. And she's studying with Kubler. I mean, she's, she's got all this material from Central and South America and Mexico. She's working on an anthropology degree. You know, she's a grown woman. And Hicks describes her as basically seething with anger in the New Haven days. And that Albers, basic, Joseph Albers, takes Sheila home with him one night to introduce Sheila Hicks to Annie Albers and says, like, you train this one, right? Like, and sort of gives Sheila Hicks to Annie as a kind of thing to keep, you know, Annie from basically, 
becoming consumed with rage. And I, I was just amazed by the, the, produ the productivity of the New Haven yeah. period. I mean, those pictorial pictures, or those pictorial weavings, rather, excuse me, <coughs> one right after the other in that room, um, with increasing degrees of technical uh, difficulty and, in, and to my way of thinking, increasing degrees of um, sophistication feels like a, the, a, the wrong word, but I'm a little fried. Um, a, a sensitivity around color and texture that that is very very elaborate at, in that room. Like it moves away from a kind of Bauhaus um, like formal rigor through the Black Mountains experimentation with materials at hand because the conditions of poverty were quite extreme at Black Mountain. To in fact this, you know, she's in a it's a nice house. There's plenty of money all of a sudden, and or there's not a there's not a condition of scarcity certainly, and the the play there is extraordinary it seems to me. Well, many people that I've talked to, in some ways, rather than dwell on the the Bauhaus moment in a way, it is that room those those works yeah. of really the fifties, the one-off pictorial weavings. Then in for many people I've talked to, has been the most kind of intense and, you know, the, you know it's not only intricate, but she seems to, sh to make some serious shifts in what she's doing. Absolutely. So towards the end of the 50s, she kind of manages to do a bit of informal teaching in the architecture school at Yale. Right. Very important for the architecture school, very important for her, I mm -hmm. think, because of her developing her ideas around architecture, which mm. she's always been interested in. But I mean, quite aside from that, and the writing attached to that, it is this intensity, isn't it, about that work, and the, the different kind of variations, both reintroducing a level of figuration, or not quite, I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's the wrong word, with these landscape idioms, yeah. allusions to landscape. To a, a choppy sea, perhaps, but that's even doesn't sound right, does mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. But also working with these open weaves. I mean, radically complicated um, weave constructions right. that I've been asking weavers. You know, kind of, please explain it. Thank you, is many, my many, many Samanadu, who's here, who's helped us a lot. But you know, even so. Weavers who are really so experienced finding it hard to figure out how she did that, you know, right. and what's going on here. Right. Well, there, one of the things I was trying to figure out in that room, in addition to trying to figure out how she was doing some of that, especially the way she's laying down that warp with all of that neg negative, you can, oh. I mean, I imagine when she's laying it as a warp, there's an enormous amount of negative space, which is interesting to think about the you know, lifelong dialogue she she must have been having aesthetically with her husband, who is like, you know, one of the great, you know, sort of purveyors of negative space. But there's something else, because I'm not, I'm not, I don't know enough technically about weaving to make a smart argument there, but 
One of the things that I did find fascinating in that room is this sense of the way Albers, if we're talking about your beautiful phrase of like, you know, what is it we can think with weaving or think through weaving, is that the model of time being offered in those things is extraordinary to me because the the sheer labor of making them is very evident in the looking at them. So there's this kind of equation or commensurateness that happens between what one imagines the process of making and the process of looking is, which is not always the case, right? Paintings often are very laborious, but their gestalt is, you know, is, is fast, right? Those, those weavings, it seems to me, are, are, are very slow in the pace of looking at them. But more than that, or in addition to that, they also, because she's using that lino mm-hmm. weave, which is, the you twist. know, the, the, the twisting, the using of the, as I understand it, the weft to twist and gather these strings of the, the you know, the, the warp, that's something she learns in South America, right? Like that's an importation of a past thing. While at the same time, what she's doing is so technically sophisticated that she's clearly moving the, the, the medium forward. At the same time, your present seems really extended, right, as a viewer. So you've got like this way in which weaving is moving between these like deep historical time Futurity, which is partly how I read like her obsession with lurex and cellophane and all those kinds of new petroleum-based um, fibers, and this durational present that happens both in the process of making and the process of looking. And again, I, I, to recall, I, I found myself thinking a lot about Smithson in the galleries and wondering why Smithson gets to stand in for everything when Annie Albers was developing a seriously complicated relationship with time mm. in the 50s mm. in um, New Haven. In one of the workshops that we've had around the show, somebody made the great remark, I think, that you know this is the time-based medium that we've not been thinking about, you know, because Anne, thank you, it yeah. was Anne Coxon, um, that, this is the uh, uh, temporal medium Completely. and has a particular kind of duration, but also has very much to do with the kind of process it is, um, the kind of way in which Roland Barthes in the preparation of the novel actually uses the, the loom and, and weaving mm-hmm. to, to express the idea of what he calls the, I think, the ex- work as a maquette that's an experiment of its own making, kind of goes like that, a sort of looping phrase. Mm. But this idea that it's an experiment of its own making is almost that, you get that sense in these weaving because the, the process of its own making is kind of there, made apparent to you. Right. Um, and I think in some ways that's part of its immersive quality, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that's true, and I wonder, um, to link it back to some of the other things that have been discussed this afternoon, um, 
I mean, I think I think we have a, a an easy or relatively easy way of talking about weaving as being sort of rep reparative, right? I mean, both in the both in the physical sense, but also in the psychoanalytic sense. And what kind of time, right, is involved? What kind of processes and what kinds of time are involved in repar in reparative thinking, reparative actions, reparative working throughs like that um, that all seems kind of like very much online for me in looking at mm. uh, those pictorial pieces mm. and again I think that question of, of what it is to think about making through weaving mm -hmm. you know it does bring a very different aspect to this a different yep. sense of the haptic which yep. is you know a, a different sense of the bodily quality of it which would get me to a, a kind of like maybe insider baseball problem, which is the problem of display, right? Which, um, which I think you're clearly playing, like you guys are clearly playing with in the show. They're not paintings, but anytime we hang something on a wall like that, we're, at, we're asking it to do the work of a painting. And we are very acculturated, um, I think, in a kind of dumb, pedestrian, unconscious way to look at a picture on a wall in a certain kind of way and assume or expect it to behave in certain ways. And those, the, the Bauhaus things, oddly, I think, do. They, to me, they kind of read and they behave like a painting. But the pictorial pieces don't and I I actually really like them framed I like I realize I really like them when they were glazed because I could get like um, that's the curator word for having glass in front of a picture um, because you could get so close and I felt like I had this kind of there was this protection and I could really get up close to it but I did I did really feel myself wondering um, what would happen if we started to not ask them to do that work on the wall like that, but install them in the way that drawings used to be installed, which was on a, a kind of, um, what's, that, what's it called when you put a book on it? Yes, yeah. we've got some of those. Does somebody can someone say the word? Sorry, a cradle, a cradle, or some kind of you know small um, easel or something. So, um, so that they're basically at an angle, right? And so that they're tilted more in the orientation that one, um, well, one used to look at a drawing in old um, drawing rooms when the, when museums still had um, you know, print rooms or drawing cabinets and you would go and look at those things by appointment, right? And they would be brought out and set up on that kind of display. Um, or you know, if you go to a place like the Morgan Library, I'm sure, I'm sure the Morgan Library stole it from someplace here in London. I mean, right, like this way of looking at drawings with that kind of you, you look down on them, they're raised up towards you a little bit. There's a kind of physical intimacy, um, which is different, it seems to me, than this kind of uh, sense of distance 
that you have as a viewer from this object and you are meant to navigate all of this space in between you and the picture. And I just got, I got really curious about are there other things, the collective we in terms of thinking about how to install those things, are there other things we can be doing? It's really interesting because whatever you do comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah. And we obviously use some of those, if don't know, cradles, take yeah, yeah, yeah. But using different formats and orientations, so you were in a different kind mm -hmm. of physical orientation to different kinds of yep. work. But they will bring kind of connotations at times too much of the library or, yeah. you know, to something a little academic or you don't want that. You don't actually want the easel. You don't want something too. It's really difficult because everything is a little bit loaded. Right. And I think in some ways what's nice is if you can get the sense of those... I mean, I think the frame helps because there's a demand to look. Mm -hmm. We kind of brought the height down yep. so that you're nearer, closer. But also that sense of um, things not being in their proper place. And oddly enough, frames can sometimes help with that because obviously when you have a design for... a a rug or a tablecloth and, it, and its frame and you know we, we have one of them next to the poured clay that was a kind of joy to, mm. to let them misbehave mm. in that way and oddly enough the frames kind of helped yeah. because obviously they were kind of a little bit above themselves in those frames and, but perhaps mm -hmm. we can open it up because yeah, I'm sure yeah. other people have for a few minutes at least some responses and suddenly Anne Coxon and Maria Muller-Sherrup, my um, co-curators, will have responses. Is there a question at the back? And then, yes, there's one at the back and then a few here. Theo Tamar. One at the back first, thank you. Right at the back, in the back row at the... There's Theo, Tamar, down in the front here, and then a couple here. Um, here first, actually, Sanjay. And then Pete. Thanks so much. Um, hi. Helen, you weren't here this morning when Grant was speaking, but I did want to ask a couple of questions that perhaps most of the audience relate. Um, some of what you were saying to what Grant was sketching up this morning. And I was struck, and of course, one is always completely thrilled to hear old modernists say that cows being, you know, chopped with their pedestals, we can move away from Switzerland and bring Alps into the centre, and as we know, move away now for decades from optically and move to the haptic, and all these things are wonderful and thrilling, and, you know, um, all power to that. And, and I'm delighted to hear that. But I wondered at the same time whether, 
with you and Ryan and perhaps you talked a little bit about one of the ambitions of the show, which was to put at its heart that extraordinary room in which you actually integrate the Peruvian textiles and the Mexican textiles and try to rethink the project of Alvis in relation to the new world art history. Because the kind of revisionist or radical project that you're outlining is, of course, really still locked very much within that modernist narrative. And one of the things that the show wants us to do is to look at Alvis in relation not only to sources, but to try to reconfigure where Alvis <coughs> sits in relation to new ways of mapping, mm. um, you know, world art histories, which is what Grant was trying to talk about this morning. So I'd love to hear you both talk just a little bit about the role of that room and how, you know, seeing Alvis's work there materially in relation to some of those so-called sources opens up new ways of thinking and possibility for dislodging what remains still a very hermetic argument within modernism mm -hmm. and within North America. So mm -hmm. just to open that up for people. Shall I just stop? First, I think we really tried not to think of them as sources. Yeah. Right. I mean, they were not our sources. They weren't influences on her. We wanted that room really or that section to function kind of like her, an unconscious, that this is what you think with. Um, you know, she was obviously of her time, and there are relationships she has to her travels, her itineraries in Latin America, uh, where many of their ideas are obviously shaped by their time and their their own history of displacements, you know, from Europe to the US and then again kind of this constant movement. But that central room was really meant to feel like the inside of her head and really kind of laying out an array of things where those connections could make themselves. I mean, the show is intended not to tell you the answer to that question. I mean, the show is meant to lay out a series of connections. And I mean, obviously, I'm not so naive that I think, you know, we did nothing, but those connections work all the way across the room. And in one sense, they, I think, whatever we tried to do with it, Actually, they do something rather different, but they're certainly meant to pose questions about precisely those kind of relationships to the other, but also to time. You right. Know. Anne has a, also a, perhaps a, before yeah. we come back. We, yeah. I'll let Anne go with it all. Um, just to respond to that, um, it occurred to me um, when Tom was speaking and showing the image of the Greek vessel. Um, something which has never occurred to me before but now seems really obvious <laughs> that the piece by Lennon Tawney um, that we show within that room where we're showing what Albus was looking at and as Bryony says the kind of the inside of her head um, we thought about whether we would include the Tawney but she's also cropped up on top of slides that, that was illustrated by Annie Albus in or weaving um, and decided for various reasons mostly to do with physical um, presence, that we would include another work which is in the Tate's collection by Tony, which is actually called Lecky Fox. And um, just seeing your slide suddenly made me realise that that piece by Tony, which is called Lecky Fox, and I've been explaining on the, the caption, um, you know, because it makes reference to a Greek vessel and the threads hanging down, 
this very light and airy piece, um, Tawny was making reference to the kind of overflowing water from a, a Greek vessel. Um, but then as you made the link between that illustration on the Greek gods and the loom, um, this kind of simple form of the loom that, ref that references the lintel and post architecture, it also, you know, I kind of scribbled a note here saying Luther's vessel. And then started thinking in a way that could also be a really great metaphor for what that central space was about. You know, that, that this is also a vessel that takes you backwards and forwards in time, that carries you into different ways of thinking and ways of making and all sorts of things. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Coming Thank you. What would you say to that? Um, I think, I think a, a lot of things about that. I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about the Albers' <coughs> journeys to Mexico is um, the way in which they have this profound encounter with what is essentially coming to them as like a kind of ready-made, complete civilization about which they know something but not much which they are seeing literally being unearthed in the 30s. You know, some of those Mayan sites are in the process of, of being excavated while they're there. And that they come as people who very much feel the end game of the Enlightenment. Like, they know that that thing that they've left behind is, is, is profoundly over and profoundly problematic and, um, and, and deadly deeply deadly. And, and what they don't do, and I think what Annie really doesn't do, and this is why I think it was so brilliant that you installed that room after the six panels, you know, which is the moment where she has to sort of actually grapple with who she is in relationship to the Holocaust and to Western culture and Western civilization. They don't fetishize it. They don't engage in it in a primi with primitivist logic, which had been a kind of modernist way of engaging with, you know, quote-unquote non-Western material, right? Like, but that, that affect is, or that approach is not there. They seem to come at it with this, um, uh, well, they come at it as formalists, right? And that actually affords them a kind of ethics with which to deal with the material. And that that's not. That's a little counterintuitive, I think, but I do think it is partly what happened with them there. And I think then they give that, quote unquote, or they share that, they engage in pedagogy around that with their students. So you get someone like Ruth Asawa, so you get, you know, someone we would now call Brown. You know, you get Ruth Asawa as a brown woman taking the the mode of making of indigenous women in Mexico of another brown woman and taking it back and making a sculptural form that confounds then the history of um, 20th century sculpture. So I, I like the way, I mean like is such a dumb, weak word, but I'm, in, I'm, I'm really turned on by the, there you go. Um, <laughs> the way in which their, uh, their engagement with that material both comes from their modernist training and interrupts their modernist 
training simultaneously. Um, and that to me feels really alive. And again, I feel like if that had been a portal through which we had been thinking about our history in the second half of the century, we might be at a different place now, right? Like, I mean, I think that there, there's a model there that is, um, has ethics in it. Their encounter has ethics in it to me. Is there a no, moment? I don't know if that answers the question. We've, this is, there's so much. So. Yeah, there's so we, much. Hopefully we will have time to come back to that, but that's a really interesting answer. We've got time to quick point. Yeah. Sorry to cut you short, but yes, no please. Um, thank you very much for this discussion and the exhibition, which is wonderful. Um, and it was, uh, it, this question actually leads on, which is, I wonder if you could just comment on your, the use of the, the textile screens the, uh, in the exhibition, because that room that Tamara mentioned was the one that was made accessible to the viewer they got there, in a sense. You know, it was, there's this barrier between you, and it's, you don't get somewhere ahead in the exhibition, but you don't know when or where mm. you'll get there. Um, so it seemed like a, uh, and it, it, especially in relation to duration, and that notion mm. of being in front of the textile, and mm. how long it takes to mm. appreciate the threads, um, and how that's very different from painting. So there's lots there. I said it would be Thank you, thank you. Well, I, I think, in a way, this is largely thanks to Anne Coxon, who ha had that idea of using the scrims and, in a way, to make it the centre of the show, but also to, to not quite let you there yet. So you're always seeing through to something that might come, come after. And that seemed... And then back. And, and then you mm -hmm. can look back, but I think and one the of the things... the double hanging of the Bauhaus. Yes, the Ronnie Horn <laughs> note on the double hang of the Gunter Strotzel reweave. But I, I think one of the things that was important to us was both the looking back, but this projective sense, you know, that there wasn't just some that one had a sense that there were possibles that came out of everything that she does. And I mean, in a way, we wanted to scramble the order and that that, um, without adopting a progressive model, that the scrim allowed that, in a way, to, you know, to add those kinds of uh, translucent screens <coughs> was useful. 